actually 1 Samuel chapter 9 this morning. We did 8 last week, 9. We're going to actually look at two chapters, chapter 9 and 10. To lay the groundwork for this, I'm going to begin by reading the beginning section of chapter 9. So do listen as I read the first 10 verses of 1 Samuel chapter 9, and then we'll pray and begin to dig in. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bacorath, the son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now, the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you, and arise and go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim, and passed through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. And then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. And when they came to the land of Zuth, Saul said to his servant, who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father uh, cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in high honor. All that he says comes true. So let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way that we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there's no present to bring for the man of God. What do we have? The servant of Saul again answered, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, When a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer. For today's prophets were formerly called seers. And Saul said to to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. And so they went to the city where the man of God was. Let's pray. Lord God, as we take time now, just to consider this section of your word that you've given to us Lord with a desire to to understand the reason why you give it and to see within it the revelations of your own person and power to also see within it God certain things that would be instructive and helpful for our lives and who we are and and where we're at and the things that we face God I would ask that in this time you would grant that I would have uh, a liberty and a clarity to uh, faithfully and simply set forth your word. would also ask God that you would be pleased that those who you have brought here this morning, that you would take your word and bless it to their hearts and minds, that you would give them understanding and application where it is. And I pray that as we uh, reach towards the end of this consideration of your word today, that even more our hearts would be enlarged with adoration to a God who has no equal 
the true living and exalted God of all. Bless this time in your word we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So when we had, as we reach now to chapter 9 and 10, we've come through all of the events and having had this series of judges along the way that God would use to kind of rule the people, help them to make decisions of right and wrong when there's disputes, used of God at times to bring about deliverance and even leading out uh, warriors and soldiers to, to bring about victories or battles. We remember in the chapter just previous to this, suddenly all of the people decided, we want a king. Samuel had been faithful, but his sons were not, and they were not inclined to ask God to give them another judge after Samuel. Their desire was to have a king so that they could be like all the other nations, all the other pathetic, loser, tragic nations. They wanted to be like those nations that could not stand up to their God. They wanted to imitate and act in those ways, even though the scripture had said that should not be their heart. But God, amazingly, in his mercy, instead of crushing the children of Israel or sending them off to another exile or slavery, he says, I'm going to give you the king that you ask for. You want a king, I'm going to give you a king. And so that's what begins to happen here as we take up chapters 9 and 10. God gives them a king. Now the title of this message is The True Sovereign and the Temporary Selection. Because one is the real king, but happens not merely to be the king of Israel, who happens to be the king of every king and the Lord of every Lord, above all principalities and powers, above all things seen and unseen, exalted above all the heavens and the earth with everything below his sovereignty and his dominion. And every other king selected, put in place, and they're there for a term. You know, every once in a while you'll read about a king who he reigned for 12 years. He reigned for 40 years. Sometimes he reigned for six months. But, but there's always a term. We're moving towards a season of elections in this country and leadership even here has terms. They may try to swap out spouses to replace them in key positions. But nonetheless, a hundred years from now, none of the present leaders will be in leadership. Isn't that right? Men are all temporary. Well, God agrees to give them this king. And the first thing that we begin to see as chapter 9 opens up is it begins with an ex the external description. It describes this one that God is going to appoint as king. Here they want to be like all of the other nations, and it seems that God, in, in his kindness to them, accommodates their own desires. If they were to be able to, in their own minds, make a list of what their king would be like, God is giving them their dream king physically. Really, I mean, when it, when it describes him, 
it says here as we as we look at the beginning of this now first of all it speaks a little bit about his family from Benjamin the king that would come among them had to be a descendant of Israel it is interesting later uh, Saul will note but I'm of the tribe of Benjamin and those of us who know the the lineage of the sons Benjamin ultimately was the baby so not what you would expect to be the leadership. And when uh, the words were shared by Jacob to his sons, it was Judah from whom the scepter would not depart. So nobody would have expected Benjamin to have the first king. But here it's a man of Benjamin. And the last thing that it says in verse 1 there concerning this father, Kish, is that he was a man of wealth. Now, other translations there say a man of valor or a man of power. Really, the sense of it, it, it is a term that when used in a military context was, was a mighty man of valor. That same phrase we see used in non-military senses, it would off speak of a man of substance. A man of substantial means, significance, and influence in his society who may have also served effectively in some previous military capacities. Some see that it, was, it, it, it became sort of a group of nobility. He was from a family of substance, a family of importance. Do people still think like that? What is his family? You know, he, he came from old money. That was, that was the sense of, of his family. And so he would have been one that people would have liked and looked to. Beyond that, now, it, it, when you see it in the ESV, it says, and he was a handsome young man. The King James there says that he was a choice young man and a goodly now that we don't use that phrase very often do we he was a goodly but that's it's a strange sense and now the predominant use of it would often be related to his appearance for example the another another translation put it this way the new american standard said a choice and handsome man Really, the sense of it is he was an impressive and distinctly attractive man without equal. I'm sure most of you can identify with this description personally. And, and, and it, the way that it further unfolds it, you know, so he was, he was Bahur, a choice young man. He was Tob, goodly handsome and then it, it explains it even further it says uh, there was not a man among the people of Israel who was more handsome or more goodly than he so he was the best looking man in the nation you know it doesn't seem like that's what we necessarily are looking for when we elect leaders but here is uh, a, an amazing description uh, of a young man who would be striking. That, that when he would come into a room, people would take note of him. Not only because of that general attractiveness, but it tells us further uh, regarding him that from his shoulders 
upward. He was, it says literally, higher than all the rest. He was head and shoulders above the rest. Literally. So when he would come in, he, w- he would be bigger. He would be an imposing figure of remarkable attractiveness. I'm sure you're, you're envisioning something or someone in your mind as I say this. And so the, the, the external description, it would have been if you were having some sort of a, a, a Mr. America beauty competition or a Mr. Israel competition, he would have won it hands down. There was nobody close to him because he was such a physical specimen. So we see the external description and and into this uh, story, we see what happens next are the escaped donkeys. Now it's a strange, uh, again, this is a different world. We don't relate to having donkeys around the house. We don't relate to these events, but a man of wealth and a man of means would have different kinds of animals. Donkeys were a very very useful animal we like to think of their usefulness in terms of like pack mules and things like that they were so effective for moving goods from place to place and and they were uh, able to to multitask in different kinds of things uh, compared to certain animals do only this and certain animals do only that Uh, donkeys were those that were were quite variable now Donkeys were generally owned by the wealthy and the rich. They, they weren't your common everyday animal. The, they were held by those people of, of influence. Now, when we think of these kinds of things, uh, we don't think of that man had donkeys and immediately esteem him as a significant individual. But that, that would be the sense here. And that's why when the donkeys are gone, missing, He doesn't just write that off and say, well, the donkeys are gone, good riddance. No, the donkeys are gone. We need these donkeys. So significant that these donkeys are gone that he sends his own son. Not just a random selection, but his own son is the one who who needs to go and and find where these donkeys have gone. And and what we're going to begin to see as we move through there is that none of this is accidental the exact day of the departure of these donkeys the direction of their departure that it is different from the journey that Saul and and this this young man will take all of this is by design Kish thinks that it's all his idea to send Saul. Saul thinks, and and the young man with him, think it's all their idea to go this way and that way. Just like we live in a world where we think everything is our own idea. Everything is under our own power. But God is at work in every single one of these details. And they begin to go through the area. And you see as they go through, area after area, it says they pass through, and it keeps saying that they pass through these areas unpronounceable cities and then it says but they were not there and so then they passed through and they were not there and then they passed through and so you see you get that image they keep going the reason it mentions it in stages is because they were probably expecting we we would find them by now well they haven't let's go on a little further wow we still haven't found them but I don't want to go back without them let's go on a little bit further 
until finally the, the, the idea reaches their mind that if we stay away, my father is no longer going to fear that we've lo- the donkeys are gone. He's going to be, I lost my son. My son is missing and then send people out for the son. So three days of traveling, they've gone quite a distance away and it is now their plan to turn back. But we moved from these escaped donkeys to, this, to the esteemed declarer. As they're ready to turn back, in verse 6 it says, But he, that's his, the young man traveling with Saul, said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city. Isn't that interesting? That it just so happens... That of all the places they could have wound up after three days traveling, they found themselves at the face and front of a city in which a man of God stays. And it's stated in interesting terms here. We're going to find out that man of God is Samuel himself. So Samuel, it does seem that after his sons were set aside for their compromised behavior, did the best he could in small ways to make his circuit and get from city to city. And this is where he was. And listen to what it says about this esteemed declarer. There's a man of God in this city. He is a man who is held in honor again the term there is is kabed which is we get from also the word glory kabod it it more literally literally than held in high honor it, it says he is a weighty man he is a man of gravitas when he when he speaks there there is a there is a strength there is a depth there is a weight to it and as a result of that People respect him and hold him in high honor. But look at the next sentence that said there. All that he says comes true. Now, that may not immediately say a lot to you. And to the pagan society, that would be like, wow, he's a good fortune teller. But that's not what really it means to those who are knowledgeable of the word of God what it would mean is this you know what he says you know what he prophesies what he declares what he predicts only what God tells him he does not give in to his own imagination and his own wants he is a faithful servant of God God tells him this is what I'm going to do he tells the people this is what God is going to do This is what God is not going to do. This is going to happen. This is what's not going to happen. Everything he says comes true. Indeed, we might go further. The reason why he's a man of God is because when he speaks, he speaks the word of God, which is often the work that God would do among the prophets. We remember Ezekiel. He was being told, look, You're going to have your tongue stick to the top of your mouth. You're going to be mute. And when I tell you to speak, then I'm going to loosen your tongue and you're going to say exactly that. And then when you're done, you're done. You're not going to be able to speak anymore. 
that doesn't seem to be the case here with Samuel, but he understood he had in himself no power to predict the future, no ability to, to, to bring about rain or famines or victories or defeats in battle. He understood he's just a man all these things come at the hand of God and as one who would thus only speak what God spoke to him his word would always come true and so people began to know if he speaks listen you know, that, that kind of notion that you don't necessarily have to listen to everybody but whenever Samuel speaks you want to you want to listen to that one because when he speaks it's significant i mean people they they have that kind of notion Be, uh, in the world that we live in people will even think oh well what's a good book to read well what's oprah saying right or the or the or the, what's what's good stock to invest in well where did buffett invest this week you know these are the ways that People still function with certain people of influence. Samuel was like that. If he spoke, people wanted to know it, what he said, because that was what's going to happen. That's an esteemed declarer. And so uh, with, with all of this, they decide, okay, let us go into this city. Now there's some strange things in there that are that are. Uh, that are often in these narratives for the sake of clarity and giving it historical veracity. For a prophet, you didn't have to come to them with money. You didn't have to come to them with a gift. That was a pagan practice, and sadly, Israel was so prone to be influenced by the surrounding nations. Even the notion that in the past times, in these days, they were calling their prophets seers, bears connection with the pagan practices of their fortune tellers and and so these notions it, it it tells us these people who want to be like the nations around them they're already compromising they're already becoming like them i tell you what's so interesting about this is to become like the world to become like society takes little to no effort you just got to be there the influence is that profound to be different to be distinct to be outside of or even as some would say with regard to peer pressure and negative ways these days to be above the influence that takes deliberateness that takes intentionality, where the children of God would have, to, would have to say, well, not what they think, not what I think, but what God says. Not their way, not my way, but God's way. Because what, what often happens is people will say, you know, I don't want to be like everybody else. I want to be my own person. And how, are, how do they end up being their own person most often? by being just like a bunch of other people, you know? So if suddenly everybody's wearing their pants four inches short, why are you wearing your pants four inches short? I just, I don't want to be like everybody else. Well, everybody at your school's wearing their pants four inches short. So how are you being distinct and unique by being exactly like everybody else? Mm, maybe it's just distinct from daddy and mommy is the, is the key at that point, right? 
So um, it, as this unfolds, they make their plan. They feel like they're equipped to go to the prophet and they make their way there. As we come towards verse 11, they come across some excited damsels and they are excited. And it, it, I wish that there was a way that could really communicate this and I'll do my best to. In the, in the Hebrew, we're getting ready to roll into to some of the most broken, fragmented sentences that you can find. They're so broken and fragmented that all translators fix them for us so that they're nice and orderly and make sense. Because what happens in verse 11, as we see these excited damsels, they went up to the city, the hill to the city. They met young women who were coming out to draw water. And they said to them, is the seer here? Now you gotta just note this. You got a little gaggle of young women coming out together to draw water. And as they do, here comes Prince Charming. I mean, a, a guy, now being that they're outside of his local vicinity, they will have never seen a guy like this before. I mean, this is Mr. Dream. And, and, and he comes walking up to them and says, is the seer here in the city? Uh, uh, he, he is, he is ahead of you. Bo yes, he is. Uh, the people sacrifice. He's here. The place, high place. Come. That's, that's the brokenness that, that's not shown here. They just start overflowing with broken words. Uh, yes, he's here. He's up there. He's over there. He's in there. You know, are you guys okay? They're not okay. They're absolutely stunned by this man. Okay, this is the appearance. This is, he has, this is the effect that he has. And, and, and finally, um, they've made it clear that he is there. And when you go there, you will find him. He's having a sacrifice today. No one's going to eat till he goes to the sacrifice because he, he has to bless the food first. And so what, what's so interesting now is Samuel then uh, comes to meet Saul at the door of the city. Look what it says here, um, verse 15. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord revealed to Samuel, tomorrow about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Now, wait a second. What is God saying is happening? Tomorrow, I will send you this man from Benjamin. Now, I ask you this. As Saul arrives in the city, does he think, I was sent here by God? Or does he think, I came here all on my own, looking for donkeys, right? So that's what I want us to begin to understand this. We live in this world where, I was going to say where we're looking for donkeys, but that's not the clearest. We live in where we're going about our business. We're going from place to place. We're doing our thing. We're making our decision. We're doing our activities. And, and, we, and we think 
It's all about us, all our control, all our power. And what we're not realizing is that over superintending all those things, the hand of God is at work. And so even as Saul will think to himself, and maybe he would want to even argue with God, you didn't send me here. No, you didn't. I came here all on my own. It was my decision to come into this city, even if we hadn't had the shekels of silver. I wouldn't have shekel. I wouldn't have come. So it was 50-50 whether we even came or not. You didn't send me. Wrong. It was never 50-50. God sent him. But wait a second. He says, tells this to Samuel the day before, but he had already sent Saul from the land of Benjamin three days earlier. So wait a second, you, you mean God was already doing this three days before and, 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 it, and then telling him the night before and God was working all of those things? Yeah, that's small potatoes. God's not only working things in three days and in two days. He works everything after the counsel of his will. He, he, he's working astounding things way back in the, in the history of Israel and the Exodus and those great, profound, powerful things to point purposely, to point forward to the coming of Christ and the salvation that he would bring. Working things thousands tens of thousands, whatever it may be, there's no limit in those ways. Because God is not like us. And so here he comes, and he meets Samuel. And here you can see in verse 17, um, when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Now when I hear that, I think, wow. If Saul ultimately served as some restraint, I can't imagine what they would have done without that restraint. Because what they begin to do shortly is, is very bad. Full of compromise so that he was some degree of restraint. Well, no, if God was going to restrain, it would be complete God's ways aren't your ways. His thoughts aren't my thoughts. His judgments are inscrutable. And the problem is we think we have him all figured out. Where in reality, he has everyone and everything not only figured out, but they only exist by the, and continue to exist and do what they do by his power and permission. And listen to what it says as we... Um, as he meets him, he approached him, and, he, and Saul said to him, tell me where is the house of the seer? So he didn't recognize Samuel, and Samuel said to him, I am the seer. I'm in verse 19, and he told him, then go up to the high place. Today you shall eat with me in the morning. I will let you know, uh, I will let you go, and will tell you all that is on your mind. What? What's going on? And he tells him, you're going to come up and eat with me. He's going to explain to him in the following verses, there is a special meal set up in the high place where there's a fixed number of seats, and I've set for you and your companion the chief seats at this special feast. And so uh, into this uh, e event, 
he comes in and we see that uh, it's beautiful in verse 21 because Saul responds with effacing discourse. When he says that you're going to come and he tells him of the special plan for him and his house, in the, in, and here he isn't even yet told him he's going to be king. This is just about the special seats at a meal. Saul says, in verse 21, am I not a Benjamite? I mean, I'm, I, I'm from the baby tribe. I mean, come on. Uh, from the least of the tribes of Israel. And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin. Why then have you spoken to me in this way? I don't deserve this special privilege that you're giving to me. Oh, so interesting. So nice to see Saul have this early humility. It will tragically fall away once he's attained positions of power. But somehow, even in these early days, despite what, what must be uh, a lot of second glances that he gets moving on in his life, there, there, is, a, there is a self-effacing sense. I don't deserve this. No, you're going to be placed at the head of the table. And this is going to be set there for you. And so Samuel ate with him. And then he told Saul to sleep. And at the end of verse 27, it says, he tell your servant to pass on you stop here for a while that I may make known to you the word of God isn't that beautiful that that's why Samuel's word always came true because the word that he would declare to people was the word of God we need to get this very clear in our minds what is truly right and wrong what is truly good and bad? What is truly salvation and what is not? What we ought to believe and what we can't believe that comes from the Word of God. It doesn't come from any source. It doesn't come from churches or preachers or individuals. Only in as much as they are faithful to the Word of God. Were it that God would so work that today's teachers and preachers and saints would be like Samuel. And what God's word says, they would repeat and they would agree. And where God's word doesn't speak, they would say, I don't know. Instead of, I got this one. God's word doesn't address this, so I'll take this one up. Hmm. Love that. Uh, so we move on. And in, as we take up now chapter 10, I want you to see the evidence disclosed. He says, you are going to be king. And here's the evidence disclosed. Knowing that he will not accept it, there's never been a king in Israel. Okay? At all. So uh, who would be the king? Nobody would know. Who would be accepted? Nobody would know. At this point, in spite of his physical superiority, there's some sense of inferiority and inability. And so, to confirm to Saul, you are going to be the guy. He tells him these words. He tells him that these 
uh, he, he, first of all, he anoints his head with oil. What's interesting, as he anoints him and kisses him and says, you are to be king, it's private. Nobody else is there. He sent the young man on. The people of Israel aren't around. They're going to come around later. It's just the man of God, Samuel, and Saul. Only those two, he anoints him, he tells him you're going to be king, and he says in order for you to know that this is true, let me tell you what's going to happen. And really beginning in verse 2 and following, let me just lay it out for you. He says you're going to, be tra- you're going to head back now, okay? And as you head back now, you're going to find out, you're going to, go, you're going to reach Rachel's tomb. When you reach Rachel's tomb, there are going to be two men there. And they're going to say to you, the donkeys have been found. And now, your dad is anxious about you and not about the donkeys, just as he had feared. So, wait a second. Exactly where he's going to meet people, how many there will be, and what they will say. That's pretty specific, isn't it? I mean, if, if that sign pans out, it should be like, wow. So, how is it in, 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 even consider this, in his travels back home, that at the moment he's reaching this particular place, Rachel's tomb, these other people out in search for him are going, to, that's where they're going to meet. How can you know that for sure? Don't you have to calculate, well, one man is traveling between point A and B, and he's traveling at point three miles per hour at a distance, and this one's traveling at, and they will meet. I mean, there's a lot of calculations involved there, right? That you, I guarantee you this, Samuel did not do the math. <laughs> he didn't work that out. How could he tell him that that's going to work out perfectly? That's the place, two men, this is the conversation. He's God in a way that men just don't get. And I don't want us to miss that as we look at this. Sometimes we see these things, we get so caught up in Samuel and Saul and a king coming that we're missing how much is being told to us about God in these passages. But it's not only that, not only that's only one of three signs. You're going to go on a little further and you're going to reach the oak at Tabor. Now, uh, there were at certain places large oaks that would often be like semi-rest stops along the way. So they would be known places to be able to get out of the, the heat of the sun, take a little rest before you move on in your journey. When you get to this oak at Tabor, you're going to find, you're going to meet three men there. One of them is carrying three young goats. Another is carrying three loaves of bread. And another is carrying a skin of wine. They're going to greet you. And they're going to give you two loaves. What? No goat? No wine? No, no. No goat, no wine. But, wow, that's very specific. Three men, one carrying three goats, one carrying three loaves, uh, one carrying a skin of wine, and with all that, they're going to somehow just give me two loaves. That is strangely specific. 
uh, of a very clear inventory where they're going to meet, what they're going to have, what they're going to give. I mean, what are the odds of that happening? And so now you've got two of these piled up together at Rachel's tomb at the Oak of Tabor, and he's not even done. Then you're going to come to Gibeoth Elohim, which is the hill of God, the hills of God. And when you reach this place, a group of prophets are going to come. And they're going to be coming down from worship. They're going to be praising God. Music's going to be going. All kinds of instruments. And the Spirit of the Lord is going to come upon you. And you're going to be prophesying. Okay, now that is not going to (laughs) happen. Because he's not a prophet, right? He's never done this. Usually there would be some indication at some point along the way that they were gifted or inclined in that direction. Saul had never had these things, but he would meet them at a particular place during, uh, with certain behaviors and that the Spirit of God would come on him at that time and do that work. How could that work? Look at look what it says in verse 6. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush on you, and you will prophesy with them, and I love what it says next, and be turned into another man. Mm-hmm. There is going to be a change that comes over you as the Spirit of the Lord comes upon you, and you will not be as you were. You will be a different man. Now, what's interesting about this is Saul doesn't have a vote in this. I'm, I'm not comfortable with point three. I like, I like the two signs. The first two signs, I'm good with that. I meet these people, loaves of bread. I, I'd like to volley for a goat maybe, but um, the third one that I'm going to prophesy like these, these fellows and that I may indeed be a different man, I'm okay with who I am. Maybe he would say. But these are the things that he says are going to happen. Verse 7, now when you meet these signs, do what your hands find to do, for God is with you. So here is the evidence disclosed. It is absolutely sure and unchangeable. God is giving them Saul as a king. With regard to this new king, we see, uh, beginning in verse 17, this exchange of God as their king for Saul as their king is decried by God. So the exchange is decried in verse 17 and following. God speaks through Samuel, gathers now all of the people at Mizpah. All right, the people of Israel are gathered together and he says, this says the Lord God of Israel. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of the kingdoms that were oppressing you. Remember, All that you have and all that you are is because of me. But you, today, you what? Have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities, your distresses, and you have said to him, set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves and your tribes before the Lord. So here it, here it is. 
God tells them very clearly, and, and, and in my heart, I can't ever read that without wishing at that point that they had fallen on their knees and say, no, if, if having a king means that we are rejecting God, we will have no king, God shall be our king. I so, I so long to hear that play out, but it doesn't. They hear that they're rejecting God, but they're committed to their particular rejection of God. I wouldn't be surprised if in their own hearts they're able to justify it. Well, technically we're not rejecting God. We're still going to worship him and not other gods. We just want a king so that we can be, it's a small thing. I mean, God should understand. Wait a second, God should understand? Is that, is that how it works? It's a small thing? we're not you'd be surprised how many little steps and little compromises people make in their lives all the while thinking I'm not rejecting God I'm not turning away from my faith I just want this too this is important to me too so I want to have God as my God but I want to have a man as my king I, I you know I want does God really have to be everything I mean, does he have to be my all in all? Do I have to love him more than anything, anyone else, including my own self in my life? Does he really have to be first and best above all? Yeah. And here's the reason why he should be that to you. Because that's what he is. He is first and best above all. <laughs> when, when we live by that, it really is living in the acknowledgement of true reality. You know, I always get a little uncomfortable with, with some of the terminology that, that we use in Christianity. Uh, we're going to make him our king. Really? You know? I mean, and, and some of the ideas, now some of them are, are, are figurative, and so that's, that's fine. Uh, crown him. Crown him the Lord of all. A beautiful song. But I'll tell you this. Whether I crown him or not, he's king of all. He's Lord of all. We say crown him just as a calling on one another to acknowledge that he has those rights. But don't us ever think for a single moment that we've somehow made him something that he isn't. We talk about placing our faith in him or not placing our faith in him. He continues to be who he is regardless of whether we do or don't have faith. And then the question of can we really place it here or there? Is it ours to place or is that saving faith, that wonderful gift of God given to us? And so he places faith in us and our faith is in him. But this is, uh, when, you, when you see these things unfolding, they have de denied, they have rejected God, and they're fine with it. And then he said, uh, Samuel said, bring all of the tribes. And so now uh, in verse 20 and following, we have the elect divined. The one who is to be selected, they're going to figure it out through divination, through the casting of lots. Now that, 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 that's a difficult thing, isn't it? I mean, if, you, if you're casting dice, 
I mean, some of you have played board games of various sorts. It's hard to know for sure what, what's going to come up on the dice. You may, three, but it may not be a three. Sometimes you're right, sometimes you're wrong, but there's a limitation to that. The scripture tells us the lot is cast into the lap, but its answer is from the Lord. God actually controls those things that we think are chance and uncertain. And what when, when they would cast lots, it wasn't, it wasn't a, a, an unclear thing. The casting of lots is something that, for example, uh, at the foot of the cross of Jesus, the soldiers could cast lots over dividing his garments okay so the casting of lots is not kind of like somebody uh looking at tea leaves and divining the future or a scatter of chicken bones on the ground because a scatter of chicken bones everyone you know what is that it's just a pile of chicken bones no the way that this is laying and that is laying it means oh, it, nonsense interpretations on how the leaves are are sitting in the cup or how the chicken bones are, are laying on top of each other where some special known individual can tell you what they mean, yuck. You know, that's crazy stuff. This, the casting of lots was not that kind of thing that only one guy knew what it was. It would be something that could be seen publicly. Everyone could, not, not him, yes him, not him, yes him. They cast lots to determine who would replace Judas. And the Lord chose Matthias to replace Judas as one of the apostles. And so here's what they did. One by one, they, be, they, they, they circle the tribes, and here comes, here comes the various tribes. They come forward, cast a lot, nope, move on. Next tribe, cast a lot, nope. Comes to Benjamin, there it is. God has selected Benjamin. Now, from among Benjamin, the various families. Now, some might say, isn't that a little dangerous? I mean, he had already anointed Saul. What if the lots came out differently? I mean, was this a fixed game? Were these weighted lots? What was going on? Well, in a sense, when God is at work, it's always fixed. <laughs> There's no surprises, there's no shock. It shows us God doesn't have to wait to see where the lot falls and say, yeah, that's the one I wanted anyway. God anoints him beforehand and then so controls the lots throughout all of that row that now family by family, nope, 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 this family. And then it comes through that family, each person comes to him one by one, is it nope, 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 and it, and then it says Saul is chosen. But then it, as is common in narratives of a, of a different age and era than us, it goes kind of in, into the details after telling us what, this, what the final thing was. So Saul eventually would be selected, but while they were going through the family, it was no to everybody. Wait a second. Is there someone else? And there was. Saul, knowing that he was the one who was selected, he went and hid among the baggage. <laughs> he thought, you know, if I'm hiding, I mean, surely the lot's going to accidentally fall on somebody else at some point with however many people pass through. And so no one, well, actually, yeah, where is Saul? 
And the Lord told him he's among the baggage. Go get him. They go and get him. They bring him, cast the lot. Boom, it's you. I mean, that, the, the hand of God displayed so power. So from all of these different events, and, and the elect is divine, God selected that man to be in that position. Oh, and, and again, in such a way where they look, took him, they saw how tall he was, and look at what Samuel says in verse 24. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see who, he whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all of the people. Basically, I'll paraphrase that. Isn't this exactly what you wanted? Is he not your ideal? And all the people said, yeah, long live the king. Which, is a, which I will paraphrase again, what they were really saying is, we reject God. <laughs> we reject God, as they were saying, long live the king, because they were choosing a man over God, rejecting him and despising him giving them what they in their flesh desired and wanted, God gave it to them. And then they're going to face the consequences of that. But what I want us to know, and, and what the last couple things that we'll see as, we, um, as this traces out, even though he is the king, which generally speaking, if the man is the king, who makes the rules? The king. Do you know why? Because he's the king. It's kind of simple, <laughs> kind of obvious. Uh, he doesn't answer to anybody else because he's the king. Everybody else answers to him, but not so here. This man who is selected as king, this is what, he, this is what Samuel, we see his duty, the explained duties. Verse 25, Samuel took the, told the people the rights and duties of kingship and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord and then Samuel went away. So here, here's what happened. He was not going to decide what a king does, what a king looks like, what are the rights, duties, and responsibilities. God himself continued to lay out those duties. It's very important to see this, and you see it most clearly when Saul is replaced with David as the second king of Israel. If you were to look through and, and you were to see the times that David addresses God and, and, the, and the common language throughout his psalm, though David is the king of Israel and sits atop them, what does he continually refer to himself as? Lord your servant is here. Your so here he is where everyone in the kingdom is to serve him, but he understands though he is a king on earth, he is ultimately but a servant of he who is the true king forever. David got that. Saul loses sight of that in a moment, but just uh, as we put these pieces together, we see these, these two things primarily, the true sovereign and the temporary selection. 
The true sovereign manifests, really the true sovereign is our God. I love the way that 1 Timothy 6.15 puts it. When he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. The blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is sovereign over donkeys. I mean, that over whether donkeys run away or don't run away. See, even their master is not sovereign over that. Do you know why? Because a master actually is not even, doesn't have the capability to affect the desires of creatures. An earthly master doesn't have, you know, you can't force them to, you can force them to show respect, but you can't force them to respect you. Can you? You can't force them to love you. You can't, you can't do those kinds of things. But God can incline donkeys to go left or right. To go up the hill, to go down in the valley. To run away or to come home. I mean, he's still doing those kinds of things and inclining. Uh, it was this week. Once again, our dogs ran away. And we've been having this problem. They're escape artists. They just go under the fence. They, and no matter what we do, if they decide we're out of here, they get out. Normally they come back, you know, three hours, five hours. But eventually they find their way back to the house. And, you know, we plug the hole, put them back in the yard, scold them. They promise us never to do it again. That could be imaginary. And, and, we carry on. Well, this week, they went. It got dark, and they didn't come back. Came to the next day, and we thought, they're done. They scoured the neighborhood, everywhere in the neighborhood, countless times, on foot, in car. It was done. I went to the pound on Monday, and it's like, they're not there. So he's just like, all right, give up. But I thought, there's nothing I can do. I've exhausted all possibilities. On the way back from the pound, I said, God, just put it in the minds of those silly dogs to come home. Because, you know, I can't get them to come home. I don't know where they are. I don't even know if they're still alive. But if they are, just make those dogs come home. And when I drove up, there they were in the front yard waiting for me. <laughs> you know, d- 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 inclined to, to come home. I couldn't control them. I'm even now trying, you know, telepathy and everything to get those dogs not to run away again. Hypnosis, whatever it takes. But I don't have the power to get them to do what I want. But you know who does? God does. And we often will feel that with our children that we love. We, would lo- we wish they would do this. And we want to encourage them and we want to tell them and we want to direct them. But to an extent, we know we're powerless to really affect what they truly want in their hearts. But you know who's not powerless? God. God, incline their hearts to you. God, fill them with an interest in your word. Give them a longing for 
the more substantial realities of truth that you convey to us show them the emptiness of all that this world offers open their eyes to see that it does not give them a sense of dissatisfaction of all of those things that call to them and give them a hunger and thirst for you and your righteousness and kingdom right why do we pray like that because we know God can do it Sovereign over the direction of donkeys. Sovereign over who gets sent, who's selected to be sent. Sovereign over which direction they would go, over where they would stop, over the timing and the days and the locations and the meeting of people and what they're carrying and what they do. God is so powerful that we don't even begin to grasp the full scope of it. That's the true sovereign. The temporary selection, in this occasion, Saul. It's it's interesting that even the name Saul means asked or desired. You know, it's what the people asked for, it's what they desired. They got what they asked for, they got what they desired. Here is Saul. It's it's so interesting that, that in God's own wisdom, he selects a man whose name is reflective. And when was he named? In his infancy, well before he was used as the answer to their asking desire. You know, if we could, when you begin to think of things and and the layers of things and and the implications of this act and that act and the way uh, things get complicated, the more layers you put on them. You know, and chess players, those who are of extraordinary skill, they're not just considering the next move. They've already considered what possibly are your next 20 moves. And, and depending on which variation you do, what their next 40 moves might be, they've got it, it I mean, they're, they're, working, they're not working on just the next move. And they are considered brilliant by us and relatively to the human degree they are but that's nothing to what God is doing with all people all nations across this whole world being born moving on from this time under the sun all the events history past present and future God is at work in in profound and powerful detail in everything with no accidents whereas with with Saul it was temporary we even see that he was given the kingdom and made the king but you'll see in chapter 28 of chapter 15 verse 28 Samuel's going to tell him the Lord has torn the kingdom from you God gave the kingdom going to tear the kingdom away from him we also would see in chapter uh, uh, 16 verse 14 when the spirit we saw in this chapter when the spirit of the lord rushed on him he prophesied and became another man well in chapter 16 verse 14 the spirit of the lord departs from him so he was a changed man temporarily and and you think oh no what about those kinds of things? Well, what's wonderful is this. When I look at that, we see the power of God. We see his particular selection and his own purposes there. And maybe some of us might say, wait a moment. 
the sovereign God, I remember when he sent his spirit to me and he made me another man and he changed me. Am I like Saul going to lose it? Is it going to be also taken away from me? Praise God, it won't. Because we are not under that old covenant. We are in Christ Jesus. He remains our king. And that's why it tells us in Ephesians 1, for example, verse 11 and following. In him that is in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his will. I mean, if we haven't seen evidence of that in these chapters, working all things, locations, people, what they carry, what they say, what they give, when they were born, what they were named, where they are hiding, uh, all of this. Everything after the counsel of his will, so that we who are first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him. Listen to what it says. We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. This is beautiful because it's not that he just rushed upon you, came upon you like he did on Saul. You were sealed with him. To, to get a sense of the, the permanence of that seal, it says this. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory the way that it said in uh, uh, first peter chapter 1 verses 3 to 5 blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ who according to his great mercy he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection that is in christ jesus from the dead to an inheritance, so he caused us to be born again, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. All right? God is keeping it, guarding it, it is secure in heaven for us, our inheritance. And then look what it says about us. We, verse five, who, are, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation to be re revealed in the last time how do i know that i won't lose my faith how do we know that those who are god's saved and chosen will not lose their faith because they are kept they are guarded by god's power isn't that great so i don't have to fear what saul feared he had a temporary selection to a position of kingship in Christ the true and permanent priest prophet and king you know what we have a permanent and persevering inheritance adoption a surety and what is the surety of it it's not based on the temporariness or the temperament of me it's based on the true sovereignty of God so as we close just reminding you of what we saw in this passage or close this and, and sing a song 
We saw the external descriptions of this handsome and goodly young man. We saw the escaped donkeys. We saw the esteemed declarer in Samuel. We saw the excited damsels in awe and flabbergasted by the appearance of this handsome man. We heard his effacing discourse in initial humility. We saw um, evidence disclosed of God's sovereignty and his selection of Saul in those, uh, the tombs and the oaks and the meetings. We hear God uh, through Samuel, the exchange of kings decried. We see that the elect to kingship divined in the casting of the lots and we see the explained duties as God continues to dictate as the true king of kings and Lord of lords, our king and our God. Let's pray. Lord, we are amazed at your hand. And it is so our desire that, that you would work in such a way that when we read the scripture, that you would open our eyes to behold your wondrous works. Lord, it's just too easy for us to, to take passages and, and moralize it and place ourselves in there and, and not see your divine display and might shine through. Lord, we thank you for this. And in these events, in the way that you worked in Samuel and Saul, that we could see your hand, your sovereignty, your power. God, we pray that you would continue your mighty work and we thank you for the confidence that we can have that in Christ our king our adoption our election is sure and secure kept by your power Lord I pray that you'd continue to do your work of sending your spirit making us into new men changing our hearts and changing our ways Lord we pray for those that we know and love that are yet caught and captivated by the world. Lord, we pray that you would open their eyes to see the greater glory that is known only through the gospel, that they would follow Jesus. Change their hearts, Lord. Continue to sharpen and renew ours for your own name and glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.